now listening to the Big Data Beard. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of our show for a special message from our team. Tell you what, I don't know what I did, but I had a couple shots too many the other morning, and uh, of what shots of espresso? What? Sorry, it is. Oh, hey now. Yeah, no, I was like, uh, you're uh, in Vegas. What can it yeah. be? Yeah, and I, I was pretty sure my heart was, you know, palpitation pulsing out of my chest. I was. <laughs> is that the day I bought coffee for everybody? I think it was. Yeah, yeah, that day. Rob, Rob, Rob has a tendency to over caffeinate. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that's awesome. I did find, uh, I was walking over here to to get to work, and uh, there was a gentleman who just cracked open a fresh Sweetwater 420 at 8 a.m. <laughs> and I always do, like, I mean. I, the dedication you know, of that gentleman. I like I, I like a drink every now and then. But, the, like, the folks that literally get on those 6 a.m. flights, and they're like, I'll have a, uh, you know, I'll have a bourbon and Coke. It's like. Yeah. Yeah. Are you sure, Are you sure about that? Like, <laughs> put a little bit of orange juice in it. You know? that, that is dedication. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> You know, if you're going to be good at something. You know, it's, it's either that or the other thing I noticed is it's people who uh, aren't used to the first class things or like, I have to abuse all the privileges right now. Oh, gonna get yeah. That's, I've okay. got drink tickets and I'm going to use them. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> it's <laughs> over here in this first class. Yeah, that's first class Rob. I don't know if you know that about him. <laughs> what? I don't know what you're talking about. Happy with an exit row. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, I had a boss one time that he... Uh, he flew Southwest so much, and they used to do those drink tickets that don't expire. Oh, know, yeah. Just before that. So he would, like, once, like one, I guess it maybe, like, once or twice a year, he, would, he didn't drink. But what he would do was he would literally save the tickets, and then, at like, once or twice a year, he'd get on the plane and hand the flight attendant, a, like, literally 130 of them in a stack. Wow. And be like, everybody's drinks are on me. <laughs> And That's literally incredible. just handed to him, and, and they were just like, oh. and they, Most popular amazing. guy on the flight. Oh, it was. Yeah. It was <laughs> he was like, I made a lot of friends those those times I did that. I'm like, yeah, I imagine. Wow. wow. That's, <laughs> That's pretty sweet. That's a pretty solid deal, right? I mean. Yeah. If you were the flight attendant, though, how would you take that? Like, oh, crap, no, I'm pouring drinks the entire flight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's get this party started. We are at Dell Technologies World, which is a giant conference. We're on day four of the conference, officially, I believe. Shoot. And uh, I'm officially over Vegas. Yeah. (laughs) And um, here's how I know I'm over Vegas. I literally, I haven't thought about how much I was paying for coffee until literally this morning I went and bought Kyle and I a coffee and a bottle of water. And for two coffees and two waters, it was $32. Right. I'm over this place. I can't imagine how much that was. glowing green juice. $12. $12 $12. Twelve dollars for 12, juice. But wow. you know, I'm gonna fall over if I don't have something that's got a vegetable in it in me. <laughs> I had a salad yesterday, which made me feel much better about life. So we're excited to have a, uh, a gentleman join us from the Pivotal team. His name's Scott Kaler. But the interesting thing about this conversation is that Scott was one of the folks that reached out to us on Twitter whenever we put out the uh, put out feelers that said, "Hey, uh, if, if you're gonna be at, at Dell Technologies World, the Big Data Beard team is gonna be there." And Scott reached out and said, hey, man, I'd I'd be interested in chatting. So so before Scott gets into that, now, all things aside, he and I have talked more than a handful of times about trying to get him onto the schedule. And so it's just my bad about not having money. I'd say to do it himself. That's how much of a slacker I am. Rob had kind of reached out and said, there's this thing that's called Big Data Beards. I'm like, hey, I I got the beard. And I do the big data thing. So, yeah, it'd be a great 
Should That's be on. Perfect, so, yeah. We're super excited to have you around. Um, so we're in the uh, the Luminary Studio that the Dell marketing team has provided for the influencers that are out there talking in the market, and we're excited to be part of it. So, Scott, I wanted to give you a chance to just tell us a little bit about who you are, because candidly, we don't we don't know too much about you. I know Rob knows you, but I don't think maybe we don't know you. And we, our audience would love to know who you are. Um, so let's see here. I'm well, Scott Kaler. I live in Kansas City, so I've been there about 20 years. Originally from Lincoln, Nebraska, so I've been in the Midwest all my life um born a husker fan still a husker fan so uh i guess i'm at the tipping point right now where i've been in kansas city almost as long as i was in nebraska so i'm trying to figure out if i'm more chiefs than husker Uh oh but i i I was born husker so that's that's got to stay um let's see here background i worked uh 10 years for a online company we took comics from like the newspaper where you turn it over and you read your comics. There was a syndicate that did that called Andrews McMill. They had a digital arm that put those comics online okay. um, called Uclick. So I put Garfield, Doonesbury, Calvin and Hobbes. There was a small team of us that put those online. So you mean like comics, like comic strips, not comics like Marvel comics. Right. Comics like gotcha. comic strips, okay. right? Cool. And that was probably my first run into big data, okay. actually, because we had multiple web servers running, mm-hmm. trying to capture all that. We had to take all the logs and process them and figure out how many people are looking at Kathy on the USA Today site or the Washington Post site, because yeah. we backed all of that, right? So all that data had to go to a log server. We processed it. We couldn't process it all on our log server. So I split it all out to multiple servers to do the processing and bring it back. So okay. that way when a batch would take less than 10 hours to run, we could potentially catch up, like if we ended up a couple of days behind or something. Um, so I did that for about 10 years. Uh, dev, uh, there was some database stuff in there. There was infrastructure stuff. We kind of covered all things because it was a startup, right? Yeah. Four people doing everything. Um, so <laughs> a lot of hats to wear, right? Right. So from there, I went to an advertising company um, where we generated, uh, we targeted users to give them campaigns and things like that. The targets that we generated were in the range of 700 million targets per day. Wow. Um, so we were doing that in uh, Hadoop and at, when I started, it was Natiza and Oracle, okay. but we switched that all to Greenplum. Okay. So was an early adopter of Hadoop because this was 2010-ish, I Ooh, would say. Very early adopter. Wow. Um, we were doing that. Uh, the f- initial clusters that we would spin up, we would do in Amazon before they had uh, the good... EMR. <laughs> the, yeah, EMR didn't exist. It was all just spinning up machines and creating a Hadoop cluster. Really? Okay, And cool. then spinning it down. Um, so we, we transformed that. We actually brought some old servers that we had on the floor and made our own Hadoop stack inside. Oh, the roll your own. Right. And we did like a, it was a mixture of (laughs) 1950s and 2950s and things that were aging out. And we found the, uh, it was a hundred plus that we would spin up in Amazon to do the Hadoop processing. Yeah. We could do inside in a rack of like 12 servers and, less time than we were doing out in EMR. So the internal, just having the internal network connectivity and the speed of the disks being local and all that made that much better. Um, So at that time, I was also doing Hadoop stuff. I did uh, our green plum clusters that we had. While that processing we were doing in Oracle and Natiza, we had a batch cycle that was in like the 20 hour-ish range. Okay. Um, We chopped that down to 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah, so that's a little was, bit of improvement. Yeah, it was just a slight improvement. So that's one of those things when we talk about transforming technology, right? So there's a whole bunch of companies that are in that. It takes a day to do this. It takes two days to do this. If you want to see like what customer service sees is two-day-old reports, right? Yeah. So you 
transform to like a parallel technology, a good big data technology, and you knock that down and now you're running stuff, you know, multiple times per day, potentially per hour, so everybody can see almost live things, right? Yep. So um, let's see, from there, I did that for about three years, was it ad knowledge, and then I went to work for Pivotal when Pivotal started up. Sure. So that was a, it was kind of a strange thing at that point, because Piv- when I joined, Pivotal hadn't actually rolled out. They said, we're going to do this thing. We're going to um, take some assets from EMC, which was Pivotal Labs, Greenplum. Um, we're going to take some stuff from VMware, which was, I believe that was Gemfire was within VMware at that yep. point in time, uh, the spring development stuff. And then they said, uh, we're going to take all this. Oh, well, yeah, there was the Cloud Foundry thing too, but that was kind of skunk works at that point in time, right? So I said, we're going to take all this stuff and we're going to roll it into a new company under Paul Moritz, who was really about delivering speed and agility to businesses. Um, and really, I've been doing that. I worked on the Greenplum side. I worked in the field doing sales. And then um, I was kind of a SME on Greenplum stuff. And now I'm a product manager. So the features that are going into Greenplum, I help decide how to make Greenplum a better tool for customers to use out there right now. Excellent. Okay. Um, and we're really continuing along, along that path of speeding up how the enterprise makes decisions, how they deploy apps, all that kind of stuff seems yep. to be going really, really well. So, so I remember that they, the Pivot always had this like triangle that they talked about. It was like, was it like it was um, uh, data, uh, apps, and then what was the other one? I think it was Insight. Insight, was, was the third yeah. one. Yeah. And how do you yeah. get through that thing faster? I always liked that idea. Actually, Paul Moritz is the... He he, coined, he made the statement that I've literally used um, like hundreds of times in conversations, but I think it sums up what big data is about, which is, and he made it at the, uh, it was either like the an investor call or it was maybe um, a pivotal conference. Anyways, he said, he said, when we think about big data, what we're after is we want to catch someone or something in the act of doing something and affect the outcome. Right. And I thought, man, like that captures it so effectively. So you've had a history in doing exactly that, which makes me laugh thinking about comics being data driven. Yeah. But it proves that data driven is it's everywhere can, can be applied anywhere. That's super cool. So thanks for the background. So I'm curious. So Dell Technologies were clearly pivotal as part of the Dell Technologies family. Yep. So what were you doing here? Like what were you uh, what were you doing running around or were you presenting this week? So I, I had two things I wanted to do. Okay. Um, one was attend sessions, right? Like everybody else. Um, my interest around that was a lot about what's going on with uh, Nautilus, ECS, Isilon, like these data platforms that are out there um, ingesting data and how all that's going. Yep. Um, the other thing was I gave a couple uh, the same talk twice, which was on integrating Greenplum with ECS. Really? Yeah. Okay. So the idea behind that is, well, so Greenplum has the concept of external tables. Mm-hmm. So that what that means is the data itself, like normally the data for the database lives on disk mm-hmm. inside this parallel cluster of Postgres databases. Okay. okay. So when you query, it goes out in parallel and reads off of disk and then on all the databases and then sums that back up and gives you the result. Okay. So the idea here is <clears throat> as you have legacy data, you don't necessarily want to keep all the data in the database because that can get kind of expensive as your data, you know, you get to three years of IoT data, that can be a fairly large footprint, and databases are not the cheapest thing in the world to, to buy, right? So the idea here is you start to leverage that in a platform that's made more for holding that type of data, which would be ECS. So I want to ask a quick question, though, because yeah. I want to clarify just one point that I heard. So so for folks who don't know about Greenplum mm-hmm. and the database technology, it's it's kind of interesting because it's different than what most, most databases that we know about, right? So... Yes. 
you said that it's it splits things up. Greenplum is considered. I think the term is massively. It's parallel M- process MPP. Yeah, MPP. So how, so unpack that. What does that what does that mean at a, a summary level? So MPP is massively parallel processing, and that means that what happens to the data is actually Greenplum. When you interact with it, it looks like a Postgres database, and it's based off of Postgres, so it's going to be really familiar to anybody that's used that before. Um, and you're using standard SQL syntax, nothing fancy, you know, weird languages. Okay. Um, and what it does is your query goes into the master, or you would put data into the system. Then behind the master, you have multiple servers, each of them running between two and 20-some-odd Postgres instances. Okay. okay, it kind of depends. You tweak that depending upon what you want to do, how your data model is, what your use case is. Um, and so what Greenplum will do is in parallel, when you submit your query at the master, the data is hashed across all of the segments, and then it will read in parallel across all of the segments. So the idea behind this is like in a Postgres database or your standard database, if you put 10 terabytes into it and you do a select star from table that has to do a single scan across all of that data, okay. right? And then right. send you the results back. The idea in Greenplum is that it parallelizes this across multiple systems. Yep. So you have, let's say, 128 segments. Each of them is reading from their own disk yep. and you're scanning that 10 terabytes in parallel to get your results set back. Okay, so, so somebody explained this to me one time and let me clarify if this is right. It's like you handed, the traditional databases are like you handed somebody a deck of cards yeah. and said, find the ace of spades. And that one person has to look through the cards and kind of go through every card until they find it. Whereas uh, MPP is like, what if you gave four cards to 13 people yeah. and asked 13 people simultaneously to find the ace of spades? Right. Exactly. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, okay. that's so accurate. That's, that's incredible. So, so, but it's, it's, it's using standard SQL, nothing fancy, like you right. said. So. So does this mean that people that can, like, is it pretty easy to adopt a Greenplum yeah, database technology if you're not familiar with it? Yeah, I would say for users, it's especially easily easy to adopt. There's, I mean, you get in there, it's Postgres command line, standard syntax, nothing fancy. Um, on the the admin side, it's pretty easy, too. We have, like, a net just puts everything out across the clusters. You don't need any special hardware. Okay. Um, it's open source, so you can go out and download it and try it. Okay. And then we have our version. Is, so, yeah, we develop on GitHub. Like, the master is the latest things. We put in GitHub first, yep. and then we put that in those. We bring that back to what we actually deploy as our enterprise version. Right. right? So you can go out and get and deploy and try the stuff. It's pretty easy to do. Sweet. Okay. We've got a sandbox VM that you can download. Oh, wonderful. So <clears throat> I don't want to derail off the, the data part of it, but we were talking yeah. about an infrastructure piece. We were talking about an infrastructure piece earlier, and you said something about ECS on the back end of it. Now, I know we had always talked about using external tables to get the data that wasn't exactly sitting inside Greenplum to get yes. to their stuff. There was some talk at one point about running Greenplum on top of HDFS, like as, a, as an entity or, or other storage platforms, other file systems. Is there still work so being done down that path? Or We did work on a product that was called Hawk for a while. Right. Right. Which um, we took the Postgres storage layer out, decoupled it, mm-hmm. and made it um, the, essentially the Postgres daemon on top of HDFS. Okay. Um, and we, we were running with that for a while. Um, and that project is open sourced and out there. We've stopped working that, on that as a path internally at this point. We've left it for the open source world. Okay. We still work on it a little bit. What we found is that more people want a they want Greenplum, right? We go into places and they want, well, this is kind of like SQL, but it doesn't have all the semantics of SQL. Um, the read-write stuff is different and how we can, we want to update, things like that, right? 
So it, it worked for the querying side, but what we ran into was people really wanted all the power that they see in a standard database when they're interacting with SQL. Gotcha. So um, we, we left that in the open source world and we're still supporting it, but we're not developing that actively internally anymore. Okay. So more of it's, at this point, it's more the connected story, right? Being able yeah. to Greenplum read at, reach out to HDFS and pull information. So let's let's in. dig into that. So, so, so Pivotal's MPP data, or Greenplum MPP database, speeds things up what are the like what are the big places where you see it being used like give me a use case today because i mean we can talk about databases and get into it but i want like what are the things that people use it for and the reason people adopt it okay um so if you heard this thing called the irs right i don't know if those people, uh, <laughs> okay there's only so, two certain things death so, and taxes yes yeah so when your taxes go in and they look for fraud yeah in your taxes that's green plums doing that okay um that's one use case uh let's see another use case is um, we have a, a trucking provider out there and as their trucks go out and about and do stuff, they need to roll all that data in. Yeah. So there's the first part of streaming the data in and seeing what's going on in real time. Right. That's not the green plum piece, okay. but figuring out the models on what to alert on yeah. and how to handle things to create those predictive models. They do that in green plum. Okay. So the data streams in and they push it down to green plum and they use green plum to create those predictive models that they push back out into their IoT layer, Brilliant. figure out what's happening. Okay, so cool use cases. And one of the things you talked about before with kind of what you were like your session you're giving is that yes, these databases are cool. Yes, they're fast, but that maybe it doesn't make sense to keep all the data in the database because it can be challenging from a size or an infrastructure or cost perspective. Yes. So why would somebody, or how would somebody take data that's maybe aging or how would somebody leverage something outside of Greenplum to offset the cost or kind of to, to help obfuscate maybe that building a giant, you know, multi-petabyte database? How does somebody do something like that? Um, so I guess what I would look at is a lot of people are already streaming the data initially into like a HDFS or a S3 or something like that. And it's landing there. Yep. Um, so a lot of times it's not even, you have to take the data and push it out of Greenplum. Yep. It already exists in that other platform. Okay. So in Greenplum, you're partitioning the data, which allows you to break it up into kind of logical chunks by day. Yep. And maybe you roll those internal partitions off. Okay. So you're not referencing that data internally anymore. Okay. And then you create a partition that points to the external data to go out and get that data. Okay. And the real use of that is like, um, when we were in the advertising industry, most of the stuff that we did was within the last month, okay. right? But we did have things where year over year, what happens at Christmas, right? What happens during Black Friday, right. those types of things. And we can't really keep three years of data inside the database to do that comparison because we're doing 700 million targets a day, right? That ends up being a lot of data. So that's where you archive that data off into these external platforms, and then you can use that uh, external tables to go out and read that data in and do those types of comparisons. Because usually those aren't something you're doing day to day, but you have an interest in looking at that at this point in time and it, it makes sense. Okay. I guess the other, the other use case I use for that is and myself, I have a bunch of smart things devices in my house. I take all that data and I throw it into uh, an external source okay. because my Greenplum instance that I have at home, I'm a PM. So what I'm doing is I'm testing stuff up and I'm tearing down my database and bringing it back up. I've got bugs. I destroy go away stuff. If data was in my database, it would be gone. Right. But I've, I've been collecting smart things data for two years, right? Yeah. I don't want my data to go away. So that stops me from having to rely on, I have a, I have a database that I can tear down and don't care about. 
right? And it makes it disposable. And that's the data science use case, right? Yeah. So you, you teed me up really well because I was just going to okay. talk about <laughs> we're huge fans of disaggregating compute and storage amongst right. all the conversations we have. A lot of the other people we've talked to over over the course of time, there, there's some sort of policy engine that's been there to help us move that data from from the hot, warm thing where I'm actively working on stuff to something that's more cold or archive. Are you, do you have that? Do you have that art, that policy engine are you working on it, or is it still sort of a manual, like, I know it's, this stuff is old and I'm moving it? Or do you have something, you know, I don't want to ask, is it in the pipeline maybe? It's, it's a manual process right now to move stuff from one to the other. Um, I don't think we've automated that because we find more people have the data already exists outside. So it's more about just generating access to it, not okay. having to actually move the so data having out. the capability. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hey, expanding on ECS as well. So we know ECS has multiple protocols to access the data. What one is Greenplum using to? Um, so the demo that I did, I used S3 okay. to get at it. Um, and the reason behind that is because I'd use S3 for other stuff. Mm -hmm. So actually, uh, I have some where the data is in S3. I have some where the data is in Ceph, right? And all those are S3 compatible. And so the demo that I've got, I can put the data in any of those and it works. Um, it also has Speaks HDFS protocol, um, and that might be a, a choice that somebody could leverage too because they know how things are set up that way. Um, I also use the NFS protocol just to load the data for my demo mm -hmm. because I've got a bunch of data and I need to get it in ECS. So I just mount up the NFS, drop it in there, and then I can use the database to query it via the S3 API, which is one of the things I really like about S3 is it being multi-protocol, right? Because yeah. it's not only Greenplum that potentially needs to get at it, right? You might have a MapReduce project you want to run on it or, or something else to get a spark, right? Mm -hmm. So having all these protocols that can get at it is fantastic. So is there one, is there is there protocol differences in terms of how well they integrate with Greenplum? Like, is it better to use HDFS or S3, is there any difference if I were to use those two for external sources? Um, so I guess I'm trying to think. So S3, we have, so Greenplum is a parallel processing system, mm -hmm. right? Multiple segments. So when it goes to access the data, the thing to know is that all of the segments are reaching out to get the data. Okay. Okay. So if you have 192 segments in your system, mm -hmm. in parallel, 192 segments are going to reach out to whatever your storage is, be right. that HDFS or S3 or whatever, yeah. and, and pull the data in. So when you use the S3 protocol, the... I guess the backside, the external tables have to figure out how to logically split up that data to go out and get it. Yep. On the S3 side, what it's doing is it's for that API, it does it by file. Okay. So each segment will go out and get a file. On the HDFS side, it can know by file split where to go out and get stuff. So it can break it down into a little bit finer grain chunks yeah. in order to get the data. Okay, interesting. That's cool. So you can get a little bit more parallelization using the HDFS layer than using the S3 API. Yeah. Now, I kind of like the idea of the S3 thing, though, because when we talk about like layers of complexity that I'm introducing into an environment, that removes a lot of that. Yeah, right? for Just sure. having an object platform sitting there, even if it is a little bit slower. Yeah, it's one of those things where like, okay, so so I've heard, I've heard this over and over again. We talked about decoupling. That's one. But you hit on something I want to unpack a bit. So there's this concept of like persistent versus transient, both clusters for processing, but also kind of data. So in like I've, a lot of the big data conferences, like the cloud dudes, you know, whether it ended a matter, it's GCP, it's AWS, it's Azure. They talk about like you can build these big persistent data stores where you need like this master record. You got, you know, data persisting, which is kind of your smart things right. thing, right? Which is I need data to stay there. I want to go do other weird stuff here and break things, kill things. Right. Those are transient. Yep. So, so S3 to me helps build that like, okay, I can store data here for a long period. 
But what I don't understand though is like, so why would an why would an organization like in real time, not just the smart things use case, why would somebody want to spin up and spin down new databases to go after external tables? So uh, you have a data science project, okay. let's say, right? Um, and your data science project has a limited lifetime. Uh, so you spin up a cluster to achieve that that project that you're trying to go after. Now, uh, like something with Greenplum, what you could do is you could start going after the data and say, well, this is, in order to do a regression on this, it's taken like 30 hours, right? Because the data is so big. Well, maybe I need to expand my Greenplum cluster. So you add more nodes to the system, scale it out, so that, that you can make that those training sessions go faster, right? right? So that's the idea is, can I, you can, in order to run a data science project, you can spin up a system, do something with the data that exists in a central repository, mm -hmm. then spin it down and wipe it out. Or maybe you decide at that point to productionalize it, yeah. right? Or do something different. I, I proved the value of this. Yeah. And now I can take it down and figure out how we yeah. actually use it. So so what tools in the, because you talked about data science, I want to poke at that a little bit. Yeah. What tools do you see data science teams using on top of the green plum database for building things like training? So I'm thinking okay. like there's machine learning libraries. There's like some of that. How do how do people use Greenplum in that pipeline? Okay, so there's a um, one of the tools that we make a lot of use of is what there's an open source tool out there called Madlib. Yep. Um, Madlib can be applied to just Postgres and it can be used in Greenplum, and it uh, does a SQL bent on a lot of machine learning things that you can do. All the, a lot of the algorithms that you can run. Yep. Right. And I'm not that's not my space. Like yeah. I don't know a whole lot about that. I got so you. if you want to. I can tell you kind of how a k-means clustering works. But no, wanna, we're not going to get there today. I've got a guy. I've got a guy. He probably has a PhD. I'm guessing. Yes, yeah. we're on our fourth day in Vegas. That's, that's, that's not going to happen. Way too deep. <laughs> All right, yeah. so, I, so, I'm lost in a random forest. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Madlib is what a lot of people are utilizing to go out and do some kind of prepackaged things, yeah. right? Um, and that's like when we have. Yeah, products that have standard ML libraries to do things. That's yeah, kind of sure. what Madlib provides you. We also have inside of Greenplum, like in Postgres, you can use um, languages, PL languages okay. that execute code on the data in parallel in the cluster. So if you want to write code that's Python code, yeah. R code, actually we do C, Java, like Perl. Yeah. If you're okay. into Perl, I'm an old school Perl you're guy. Old school Perl right. scripter. So yeah, um, so you can execute all that stuff inside the database in parallel. So we're right. seeing a lot of people using. I would say R and Python are the two hottest yeah. things inside the database. And for data science, like yeah. Pi and PyTorch, they're yep. super hot. So, so I want to back into hardware for a second because I like the I like the data science use cases. That's very interesting. So Greenplum, from a hardware perspective, it's it's running on a it's an open source platform, but also proprietary. You have a version. What kind of what kind of hardware do you run a Greenplum database on? Is it just like commodity servers, or is it like does it love big, giant, beefy GPU accelerated servers? Like what kind of hardware runs Greenplum well? So you can. Um we like to say it runs on commodity servers. Okay. But I don't think Dell likes to say what they have is commodity server, <laughs> enterprise server. Nobody, right? nobody who makes anything wants to right. be called a commodity. So I think my favorite platform to run things on are the, was it the R740XDs? So big beefy boxes. Yeah. So yeah. you want a decently beefy box with a lot of drives because okay. people tend to have a lot of data. Okay. Right. The more RAM you have in it, the better we do. But none of this is like special hardware that you have to order yeah. like specific things for. Right. And... I mean, truth be told, there's people running on HP, people running on Cisco. We run it in AWS on machines out there. Um, there's no special system that you need. Okay. The hardware that you throw at the system is going to 
give you how far you can go. So we've got a new architecture that's coming out called uh, Green Plum Building Blocks, okay. which is based on uh, 940s, I believe, okay. and the external attached arrays. Okay. So that you can get like four cores, four CPUs in the box, and was it like 96 cores or something crazy like yeah. that, and yeah. one and a half terabytes of RAM per node. Okay. Um, and Green Plum, because it's a parallel processing system, it can make use of all of that hardware. Okay. Um, so the more Green Plum, the more hardware you throw at it, the more it can do. But we can also run it on. We've we've got people that run it on a Raspberry Pi also, right? Not That's your not your. Uh, that's just because it's it's software based, right. right? You buy like a teradata. Usually, it's hardware based, and it comes in an appliance, yeah. right? Greenblum's software. Run that's, anywhere. Yeah, that's where we started out at. You can run it in VMs. You can run it, you know, uh, in the cloud. You can run it on your own hardware. Containers? Can you run it in a? We're working on that okay. on containers right now. So, and it's not that we can't run it in containers. Yeah. A lot of that comes down to the the day two proposition, right? So, what happens when you're running a massive cluster and something with inside the cluster fails out? Yep. Doing recovery and those types of data things. persistence and cluster. Yeah, and a lot of it's the, is still the persistent storage thing is kind yeah. of what we're we're working with. So we're there. We can deploy it, make yeah. it run, and it'll but go. Just, yeah. But it's it's the recovery side of stuff, making it more user friendly. Okay. So you said so you said lots of lots of disks, lots of RAM. Mm -hmm. Is Greenplum? How is Greenplum taking advantage of some of the, the later the latest innovations in hardware like GPUs? Is that is does GPU yeah, technology we help? We haven't done anything with GPUs yet. NVMe. Uh, yes. Okay. So like the the building block stuff when you build that out. Um, you can drop NVMe card, NVMe card in there, and one of the things that it, you can do in Greenplum is you have this concept of file spaces, okay. and that allows you to decide where you're going to put your data at yep. inside the database. Okay. So we kind of talked about cold storage before, right. where you're putting it outside the database. Inside the database, you can use file spaces to say, I want this to go on my massive RAID array of magnetic disk because I'm going to do a lot of sequential read, right. and it's going to be deep data. You right? know your I/O pattern. Yep, right. Gotcha. So the the other side of that is you can take a file space and you can put an NVMe card in there, okay. put a file space on that so that your fast data that you need quick access to, all the data for that is actually put on those NVMe cards. So we can make use of the hardware in different ways. And we're really excited about like uh, the price and SSDs going down yeah. has been really cool. Um, and the price in NVMe's and their application inside servers has been kind of going up, right? Excellent. So I'd seen, we'd looked at Extreme I.O. cards when I was a customer yeah. and going that route. And they're really neat, but they're really expensive. So <laughs> like doing a cluster of 16 servers all with Extreme I.O. cards in there was a bit tough. But where NVMe's at now, I think, you know, we're really to the stage where you can drop that in a rack of servers and that becomes your primary data store potentially. Very cool. So you've got this massively parallel processing database called Greenplum. Can run what it sounds like kind of anywhere. Can run in a cloud, can run on premises. Yep. Sounds like it's powering some really interesting data science tools yep. and playing in the right libraries. What's next for Greenplum? Like, what are you guys working on that you can share clearly, that, you know, with the team? Like, what's what's exciting for you in the next couple you know, months or a year? So the, the big effort for Greenplum has been Greenplum and Postgres forked. We forked off of Postgres about 8.2. Okay. okay, and that was, God, that was like 10 years ago, right? So we developed Greenplum along our own stuff, making it more parallel data warehousey. And Postgres went along the OLTP side of stuff, okay. right? So we, we were adding our own code for 10 years. They were adding their own code for 10 years. Um, in 2015, we put Greenplum out on GitHub. Yeah. Um, and we did our first, uh, like, the 5.0 release of Greenplum, which is the first one we tagged in GitHub. 
came out, I think it was, I want to say fall of last year. Okay. And that's when we went from 8.2 to 8.3. So it took us two and a half years of code wrangling yep. to get things in line from 8.2 to 8.3. Okay. okay. So that was five. That was a big release for us. Okay. Um, what we're looking at next is Green Plum 6. Okay. All this code work that we did previously has brought us really in line with the Postgres code base. So for GPDB 6, we already have... 849091 merged in. Okay. We're looking at 9293 potentially and really hoping for 94 and 95 to okay. get all of that code base in for six, which would be about a year from now. Okay. Um, once we get that in, we're kind of on a um, path to really get caught up with Postgres. Okay. That's kind of that's our, our big effort is around that right now, realigning with Postgres. And what's the benefit in doing so? Like help help me understand what that means. Well, there's there's thousands and thousands of people working on Postgres. Right. So we can start to leverage more of that open source community. Yep. So we've been pushing back and forth from our code base to Postgres's code base, and then taking things from Postgres. Um, if we get parallel with them, that allow people to both develop on Postgres and Greenplum at the same time. Oh, very cool. Okay. Um, and we makes can, it more broadly adoptable, right? Yeah. Okay. People will, will know the system and know how it works, and you oh, can take cool. code back and forth. So that's kind of so it really is been pushing more and more towards the open source. How do we align to that model? How do we get more comfortable with developers? Very cool. Right. Yeah. Because there's a big delta between if you were to develop in one or the other right now, and we want to shrink that delta, so right. it's it's not too much difference. Very cool. All right. A lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal in a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Brought to you at Databricks, who is pleased to host the Spark and AI Summit on June 4th through 6th in San Francisco. The Big Data Beard team will join more than 4,000 attendees for three days of in depth learning. We'd like you to join us, so we're offering a 15% discount available in our show notes. And the way this works is we're going to ask you a handful of questions. I want you to say, answer the question with just whatever comes to mind first. So okay. Really, we're trying to keep it snappy. It'll be fun. We are in Vegas. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Split decision. you got to make okay. it fast to make the money. All right. So first question. Okay. What year do you think Skynet will go online? Um, I'm going to say 2022. 2022. Ooh, that's pretty close, dude. Um, what is the last really good book that you read? Um, Ready Player One. Okay, great. Uh, have anybody seen the movie yet? Not yet. Uh, I can't. Not yet. I, I've read the book. I, oh, so you can't see I, the movie? Are you think... one of those guys? Well, just from what I've read in the reviews, I, it, it's, I don't, I can't. Oh, Keith Cubito read the book, though, and saw the movie, and he said the movie was good, but your the book readers will be a little disappointed. Okay. Uh, my 11-year-old read the book, too, so after I read it, I made him read it. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. Right. He liked it. Uh, what genre of music are you currently rocking? Uh, well, I'm not sure what it's called these days. I'm so I have my music collection is mostly 90s stuff because that's when I did a lot of a lot of listening. So kind of the industrial type stuff. So like old Nine Inch Nails yeah, and, right and that type of thing. Is Dig it. Okay. That stuff. And some of these some of these people in the data, they go hard, man. That's, they're really hard. <laughs> Wired in. We had two PhD data scientists on here, and they were like, we asked them both of the list, and they're like, metal. <laughs> well, it's, like, it's like with Matt the other day. I was like, I know. Oh, yeah. You, you get into your groove while you're working, and <laughs> you're rocking back and forth and going to the, yeah. Takes you in the awesome. zone. Uh, what piece of technology is currently making your life worse? Making my life worse. Um can I just say, like, Wi-Fi in general? Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> um, a, good one. I, that's that, a good choice. So, so the reason for that is 
I, I have a, a decent sized house. I have five kids, my wife and me. Um, I went to the, the ECS talk and they said, how many devices do you have in your house? And yeah. um, that made me think about it. Uh-huh. So I kind of went back and counted and I've got, it's well over a hundred devices in my house. Holy so <laughs> He's got you beat, bro. Yeah. Well, that's five kids. You got computers, tablets. That's plus true. My smart thing set up. I mean, I, I got lots of stuff, right? Yeah, my wife and <laughs> I, my wife and I are at uh, 43 Right okay. I've got, I thought I was doing good. I've got 72 smart things devices. Holy so <laughs> then you take that and multiply that by all the like tablets. I've got five echoes. I mean, we, I've got a Google home. So we get, I'm, I'm pretty wired in, which is awesome. But the Wi-Fi, having the Wi-Fi where everything switches back and forth and maintains all that can be yeah. a bit rough. So what, right? what's, I've got to derail. What, what router or mesh router system are you using today? So yeah, I've got, mesh, right? I, well, I've got Google Fiber at home. So in uh, each of the TVs for that is a box that provides Wi-Fi. And then I've got some Asus routers on top of that that I've mixed into that. So I haven't gone like a full mesh yet. Oh, okay. And I'm trying to manage like my uh, my spaces where everything exists at and yeah. try to make things when the signal's not good, drop it off and move it over. And that's uh, I need to find a better solution for that. Dean so. Jackson has a ubiquity. Yeah. And he has said that he can stream 4K to his phone and walk up and down stairs in his house, oh, really? and it will hop access point oh, yeah. to access. Yeah. yeah, not dude. I've tried. I've got Google Mesh, and it's at home, and it's not not cutting it. It's not. It's not doing that. <laughs> I'm seriously considering going to that Linksys Velop. They say it's pretty solid. I haven't seen that one. It's yeah, the, so every so people usually Google and then Ubiquity, or it's usually the two that I hear from. But yeah. if you're having it, well, it's just you could be. Well, weirdly, like my so my cell phone will literally not like jump between them. So if I connect, I can connect to it. But then if I move in the house, it drops. And it won't automatically reconnect even to the one I was on before. The only way it'll do it on my phone is if I create a guest network. But the problem is if I create a guest network, then all my devices are on yeah. a separate network, so I can't print from my phone and do all that kind of stuff. Anyway, sorry. Right, yeah. Wi-Fi talk. I'm actually concerned. How do you get any work done with keeping all this IT technology running <laughs> at your home? Like, that's stunning. Well, that's I'm the home sysadmin, right? <laughs> Site reliability right. engineer. And, and, and a, lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time, my kids will yell down, Dad, I can't get this thing to work or whatever, right? And the first thing is, have you rebooted, right? The, the standard yeah. thing, right? And <laughs> nine times out of ten, that fixes the thing, right? So you do so, that. And yeah, then you I, go, I do you that. go full, like, Nick Burns company computer guy and just, like, move. <laughs> Was that so hard? Well, you know, eventually. Play, let me sit down. Eventually, you've got five kids. That becomes your IT staff. It's like the farm family of the past, <laughs> but, but it's the IT family of the future. Well, so when you look at that, I think a lot of the, the kids these days with technology, I think us coming up in some of this technology stuff, we see a lot more of the engineering. Yeah. I think my kids just assume oh, yeah, yeah. that all that stuff works, right? They we don't had to really, build things. Yeah, we had, we had yeah. to build all of that, right? They just assume that the tablet, the Netflix on their computer, you know, all that stuff just works. So they don't really... I don't think they really think about what's behind all of that the to make all that work. As a service is destroying our it right. <laughs> it's made well, it too easy. It's like your car, right? Like when I work with my dad, my dad knew the insides of his, was it a C20 massive pickup, right? Yeah. And could rewire the insides of the car and make it work. When I pull out my Odyssey that I've got for my kids and I open up the hood, there's no way I can figure <laughs> out how all that stuff's yep. wired together and doing its thing. So in the as a service, have you guys seen that Volvo in some cities has now like one of their cars you buy as a service? Basically, Yeah, a lot of companies. Cadillac started talking about that uh, it's, like it's, a year ago. It's a non-negotiable monthly fee Yeah, and you get a car. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Anytime they pop up in the hood, it's just like, yep, that's yeah. an engine. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about my oh, car knowledge. See, that's why I swear I'm gonna be I'm gonna be like the lone dude 25, 30 years from now, still driving a gas guzzler. Because I love like tinkering. I love the under the hood. So I uh, weirdly, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question. But what is your current your personal or your biggest personal money pit right now? <laughs> Ugh. Biggest personal money pit. Um, if you say something besides my five kids and all the crap I've got in my <laughs> Wi-Fi network, I'm going to be surprised. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kids technology. So I would say two things. One is uh, my kids technology, and the other thing is going to be board games. Um, I sink a decent amount of money into Kickstarters and board games. I'm kind of a board game dude. Okay. Um, I'm part of a couple of events that meet up and play board games and that kind of thing. Really? So yeah. Um, we, I spend probably more than I should on board games. That's awesome. My wife will tell you that too. <laughs> What's the one board game you would suggest for everybody to go get right now? For everybody to go get. That's... Or our listeners. How about that? Okay. Narrowed it down a bit. Okay. If you were to say our listeners, um, I don't know, so one of the games that I've been having a lot of fun with is this game called Burgle Brothers by Tim Fowers. Um, and what it is, is it's kind of like, a, and we're here in Vegas, right? Yeah, right. So uh, the, the Ocean series of movies, it's kind of like that where you're breaking into an office and it's a cooperative game and you go through multiple levels. Uh, you try to avoid the guards, find the goods and sneak out in the game. Um, I like it because it, it takes a lot of thinking and you have to really work cooperatively. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a lesser known game, but it's fun to play. And it's not a, I really like the eight to 12 hours. A bunch of people sit around and have drinks and play the long games. But this one's a little bit shorter and it's a cooperative play game. Okay. So I would suggest people try that one. And out. what was the name of it again? It's Burgle Brothers. Burgle Brothers. Okay. Yeah. All right. I like that. We'll drop yeah. a link in the notes. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, are you going anywhere uh, really interesting soon? Um, hopefully I've hit my interesting peak over the last month. Yeah. Um, so I was in Detroit, was talking to an automaker up there. Cool. There was Postgres Conf out in New Jersey. I did a week of that. Um, I went into, out to Omaha and saw uh, Union Pacific and West Corp. Okay. Couple of Those are three cities that I'm not sure would have mostly registered on interest. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people. And then, Jersey, <laughs> I'm in the Midwest. I love it. Right? That's, um, a, dude, that's a dude from the Midwest right there. <laughs> so then we got Vegas oh, this week, Neat. right? And then actually I'm going to go to Orlando because my wife's graduating from nursing school. Oh, cool. So that's we're awesome. going to go out to Orlando for a couple of weeks to celebrate that. So Excellent. Near future interesting is going to be Orlando. Excellent. Um, but really, I'm hoping with all the kids, I've been doing a lot of traveling over the last month and a half, kind of buckle down for maybe a month and stick Good. around the house. Good instead. for you. All right. What show are you currently binging on? Um, currently, so I'm way behind on my comic book hero shows. Okay. Um, so while I've been in Vegas, I binged on Black Lightning. Okay. Um, and so, but I got through all of it. So okay. now it's on to, I got to get caught up on... Uh, the Legend series. Okay. Um, and I'm a couple episodes into that. All right. So. so bonus question. We don't always ask this one, but this one, given your background, mm -hmm. what is your favorite comic? Ooh, favorite comic. So toss up. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I've got a Marvel and I've got a DC one. Okay. Um, so my favorite Marvel comic was Punisher War Journal, yeah. which I started collecting when it first came out. Okay. Related to that, I don't have any of my comic books anymore. Yeah. Um, when I moved out, it was like this massive collection. I just had to get rid of them. So Wives don't love them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, really, it was I was moving into a small place on my own, and my parents said, we're not keeping this crap. It's got to go. So yeah. they went to the comic book shop, and they said, oh, you got all this stuff. Here's 10 bucks, right? So 
Do you um, know how many thousands of dollars right, I spent? That's, uh, I, I put it in a spreadsheet, and this is like $2,000 in comic books, 10 bucks. but anyway. So uh, Punisher War Journal on the Marvel side, and then on the other side, on the DC side, is Suicide Squad. Okay. So when Suicide Squad first came out, I was really into Suicide Squad. Very cool. Well, Scott, thanks so much for being on. We've had a great time chatting with you. I'm curious, where's the best place for folks to learn more about you and social? Like, are you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, so there's I've got actually two, Twitter, you're, you're two Twitter, Twitter handles Yeah, that I use. One is Boogabee, which is B-O-O- G A B E E. Okay. Yeah, that's like my personal one where gotcha. I, anything and everything's out there, right? Like maybe yeah. it's the latest XKCD comic or okay. that really resonates, or I'm talking about big data stuff, could or be board games. stuff, board games, yeah, about anything. Okay. Um, if you want more work related, like pivotal related, green yeah. plum related stuff, yeah. I have pivotal red. Okay. Um, and that one I will do, like sometimes I do videos and put them out on YouTube yeah. um, and just talk about releases of green plum that are coming out. That ends cool. up on that Twitter handle. Well, excellent. Well, man, it's been a super fun conversation. I know the guys enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us in the Dell Luminaries booth. And uh, thanks so much for hanging out with the thanks, Big Data Beard team. By the way, out. thanks for having an awesome beard. I think you're officially the first ginger beard we've had on. All right. Number one. <laughs> Way to represent, brother. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. I'm Brett Roberts, and I have an exciting announcement. The Big Data Beard team is now an official partner of the Disney Data Analytics Conference. We will be recording at the event, and we'll be giving away a free pass to this really impressive conference. Make sure you tune in to our next episode for discounts and to hear how you can enter for your chance at winning a free pass to the Disney Data Analytics Conference, taking place in Orlando, August 28th through 29th. The music for this episode is brought to you by Andrew Bell. Be sure to check him out on iTunes or Spotify. And as always, thank you for listening.